Would you up the volume? How's that? Better? Good? How's that? Yep. Okay. So I love that poem from, from Martha um, about creating the clearing in the dense forest of your life and listening, waiting, and And we come to the end of these retreats and you know, we're you know, edging towards home and you know, our life, whatever that is, and you know, we sort of shift this, we're leaving this beautiful you know, Garden of Eden, oasis, refuge, um, and going back into you know, life, society, family, work, whatever you're going back to. And, you know, sometimes retreats can be a blissful um, abeyance or suspension of life stuff, personal, relational, societal. Um, but when we, when we return, that, that the world returns, you know, in our consciousness. And um, the question that that arises for me a lot is what is the relationship of this work to where we are as a species and as a planet? And it's a really important and uh, deep and rich question. And don't think I have an answer for it. <laughs> but it's really good to ask the question. Right? So the question I posed, which is my way of sort of holding this question and the dilemma is, how does the earth wish to move through you? personally, and, and we could ask, how is the earth wishing to move through us as a species? So we wake up. We wake up to the beauty and the magnificence and the fragility and the vulnerability of life and ecosystems. Okay. And so, so we, know, you know, we know the data, we know what's happening intellectually, we know enough, you know, there's always more to know, but we know enough, <clears throat> and we certainly know enough as a species, politically. But that doesn't seem to be creating the change we need, uh, or to the scale we need. So we're in a dilemma. In love with this beautiful earth and all of its generosity. Talk about generosity, like this endlessly giving abundant earth that gives us everything we need. And so, you know, we're left with sort of questions or, or 
dilemmas, challenges. You know. How do we hold what's happening? And how do we meet it? And how do we respond personally and otherwise? And so it's clear, it's becoming clear to me and many others that, that the knowing of the data does not create change and transformation. And the data is important, the science is important, but there's something about the shifting in consciousness, the shifting of our understanding about who we are as a species that's interwoven with the web of life. Like that shift in consciousness when it when it when it happens means we radically alter the, our relationship with the earth and with each other and with species. And so what we're doing here, I think, is we're is we're having a radical shift in consciousness. Would you agree? Maybe not radical, but some shift in consciousness, hopefully. <laughs> I think you can attest to that. <laughs> Spending a week in the beautiful wilderness and, and letting it permeate you and saturate you and, and influence you and move your heart and, and consciousness. <clears throat> And I wish all eight billion people would have the luxury and privilege to spending a week immersed in such beauty and, um, and wildness. You know, it's, it's a very we're very privileged that we can do this. Very lucky. It's a privilege to come here. You know. So Joanna Macy talks about the, um, I think she would still advocate this teaching. It's old now. It's probably at least, I don't know, 20, 30 years old. You know, the three, the three sort of facets of the great turning. She talks about the great turning, this shift from, from a destructive, extractive uh, society to regenerative and sustainable society. And the three kinds of actions. Um, the first is holding actions, which is what we know, what, what, what's sort of like the public face of the environmental movement, the, the litigation, the slowing down, the destruction, the lawsuits against fossil fuel industries, the campaigning in the streets, the standing in front of bulldozers. Um, it's an important part of slowing down you know, the, the damage. And the second is alternate, alternate structures, alternate forms that create a different um, model to existing one, like regenerative agriculture is a really good example of how to farm and grow food and also nurture the soil and also sequester carbon and uh, make it more sustainable for the farmers. And so alternate structures, and maybe many of you are involved in some of those, and then the third is shifting in consciousness. Shifting in consciousness. That 
that really maybe underpins the, 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 the other two, that we need a radical shift in consciousness as a species to understand what we've been learning in this retreat, interconnection, interdependence. Everything has a consequence, as we are sadly seeing. We can see it in this beautiful forest. You know, if you look deeply, you can see it. You know, the impacts of drought and hotter summers, drier. There's these winds that are becoming more the norm in New, in New Mexico. Climate change. There's even a heat wave in England. I mean, it got at least, you know, 68 degrees or something, you know, <laughs> sweltering, there's a public emergency, and, you know, hosepipe bans, and, you know, the world coming to, you know, 70 degrees. <laughs> I'm exaggerating, but, you know, 120 degrees, I think, it was reached here somewhere this week. These last three days were the three hottest days on record. <clears throat> So, so there's a, a Zen koan. Uh, the monk asks a Zen master, what is, what is the work of an awakened life? What is the work of an awakened life? Great question. What is the work of an awakened life? What does it mean? Like, what, is the, what is the fruit? What is the manifestation of an awakened life? And the Zen master, I think it was young men, replied, an appropriate response. Mm an appropriate response to the moment. That's very zen. <laughs> can, we give, can you give me something a little more? <laughs> Tell me what to do, for God's sake. <laughs> an appropriate response. What is an appropriate response to where we are in this moment, where we, where we are ecologically? And my hope for this work, for this Awaken the Wild work, is that as people come, as you have done to, to nature, to the woods, to the mountains, that, you know, that we fall in love. Because when we love, then we care. When we care, we protect. We protect, we steward. But it won't happen through abstracts and research articles. It will come through the immediacy of loving this amazing, beautiful, sacred, rare jewel of a planet. Loving the songbirds that are declining precipitously. Betsy teased me the other year and she said, oh, I hope you're not going to read that really, that really, that poem that makes everyone cry at the end of the retreat. <laughs> 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 Just let me know. Give me I'm not going to read it. <laughs> and it's, it's a poem by uh, Mary Oliver. I won't read it, um, but I'll say the punchline, <laughs> which is a good punchline. Uh, 
which is, um, she talks, she says, you know, she's reading this, she's sharing this very heartbreaking story, and then she says, I'm, I'm, I'm sharing this with you not to, not to break your heart, but to allow it to break open, to allow the heart to break open. Right? And it's so important that our hearts break open with love, with love for this beautiful place, this earth, this forest, this land, this being, species. And when the hearts engage, then we, you know, we act differently, we move differently, we vote differently, we engage differently. So, so in a way, I kind of like the Zen car, and what is the work of awakened life, an appropriate response? I don't know, but when the heart's loving and engaged, it will more likely respond appropriately in whatever small or large way we can do in our life. And mostly we can do small things, but do them with great care. So, how does the earth wish to move through you? How can the earth move through you? How is the earth moving through you? It's moving through you by bringing you here to fall more deeply in love with her, for one. And you listen to the call heart has been no doubt touched by innumerable things here. And I hope and trust that that, that being touched has its ripples. You know, we don't know the ripples, but everything has ripples. Um, Robin and I were talking uh, this afternoon, and I think it was from a retreat, a retreat I taught last year in Colorado, and, um, and, and was asking this question, and one of the participants, who I believe is an activist uh, educator, and she said, I you know, planted this, lives in Denver, um, downtown Denver, and she planted a, a you know, pollinating garden, you know, planted only pollinators, only native flowers, plants for the bees and the pollinators. And that was her that was her response. That was the appropriate response. She's living downtown, but she can plant, you know, a garden full of pollinating flowers and, and then her whole the ecosystem of her garden changed and more insects and more bees and then more birds and you know, creating this little urban this little um, what do you call those green corridors through these urban landscape so bees and insects can, can you know find their way you know all the people who are you know getting their towns and cities to you know become darker at night you know, just reading about how incredibly disturbing it is the bright lights for, for migrating birds um, they're flying over these bright cities and they're blinded. That's why so many birds go into buildings. They get, they get confused. 
right? so this movement to create darker cities and darker towns and an appropriate response. Maybe your appropriate response is, I need to get my ass in the woods a lot more than I'm doing. Because I'm kind of separated and disconnected and like, oh, I feel like I wake up, I come alive when I'm outdoors. I feel connected, I feel less lonely or less depressed or less anxious or something. Maybe I can bring my kids or my family or my neighbors or... a poem from the poet Hafiz. Well, it's not the story, really. There's a um, uh, one of his Hafiz is a Sufi poet, um, Persian, Persian poet, um, and uh, his one of his sort of benefactor students comes and uh, wealthy landowner, and he comes and he says, and he's had all these vis- these mystical visions of God, and and uh, so um, Hafiz says, oh. You know, so tell me. You know, so he tells him all his grand stories about his visions of God, and then Effie says, "So tell me, how many goats do you have?" And the man says, "Goats? You're asking about goats? I'm telling you about my mystical visions of God." Yeah, how many goats do you have? You're a farmer, you're a landowner. And so he talks about his goats, and he asks about his other animals, and then he says, "You know, do you? How do you take care of the your your your, your laborers, and do you feed the birds in winter?" And, and he says plying him with all these questions and then and then Hafi says, You ask me if your visions of God are true and I say they are if they make you more kind and more caring to every creature and every person you meet. Right? That's an appropriate response. Right? Not to be just in one's mystical bliss, but to actually also to feel the fruits of that impacting in your life in some way, directly or indirectly. So one of the, um, I think the important things to be mindful of in general, but also particularly when we leave a retreat, um, but maybe you've been experiencing it here, is the quality of solastalgia. Solastalgia is a a word coined by an eco-psychologist in Australia, McKennett, I think, McKennett, who, uh, and the, the, the word means, it's two Greek words, place and pain. And it's a word that we now often experience when we go out into nature. And when we go out into nature to a place that we generally consider as a place of refuge or beauty or goodness or healing, but now is also tinged with sadness and loss and grief. You know, maybe because we feel the drought in the forest or we can smell the smoke from the Canadian fires wherever you live in the Midwest or the East Coast, or you um, see the precipitous drop in water levels, or what, in all the many, many ways that we see it. And, um, and I think this um, 
it, it, I think it happens when we leave retreat because we leave this beautiful oasis, you know, relatively pristine. And then we go back, you know, onto the freeway and into the city and maybe to the airport and, you know, to the urban sprawl and to a to-go play, drive-through to-go place. And um, I used to lead these backpacking retreats in Arizona and Navajo country and we would have to drive out and the nearest airport was Las Vegas to this retreat <laughs> and talk about soul nostalgia it was more like despair <laughs> it was a little ab- abrasive to say the least at least driving down to Taos you know Santa Fe is a little more mellow <laughs> slow tranquilo um And so, so this, you know, just to, to, to know this as part of leaving the wilderness is we can often feel, you know, sort of a heartburn almost, just a, of, of what, you know, what, what we've done to this beautiful planet with our, with our, you know, all in the name of development. So this phrase, we protect what we love, we protect what we love. How do we protect what we love? It's a great question. I have all kinds of questions for you tonight, but not many answers. (laughs) You know, just that that line from Rilke that you probably know, as you say something like, love the questions themselves love the questions themselves. The answers could not be given to you now because you would not be able to live them and the point is to live everything. Live the questions now and someday far in the future you gradually without even noticing it live your way into the answers. Live the questions. What does it mean to protect what we love? What does it mean to have an appropriate response? What does it mean to feel the earth moving through me or listening to Ask, what does the earth want to move through me? So when I turned 50, I um, asked this question, that same question, what is the earth, how does the earth want to move through me? And I realized that I had basically had to give up all of my, all of my work that wasn't related to nature. I was doing a lot of corporate work and trainings and leadership development and coaching and all good stuff, you know, all good work. And some of you probably do that work. But it was like, oh, what, what's, what was calling me was nature. And, and, and that felt my, like that was my connection, that was my love, that was my gift. It's like, okay, turning 50, you know, it's a downhill. <laughs> if you're not going to do it now, when are you going to do it? So I just let all that work go. And I'd say 90% of my work now is nature-based and will soon be 100%. And that's my response. You know, that's my particular thing. Uh, and it feels, it feels uh, congruent, you know. Um, so one of the things that I um, like to mention kind of dovetailing from the theme on some of the reflections on the retreat about how we incline our mind. I think in these 
in these ecologically difficult times, which in this very moment seems very far away. <laughs> you know, it's amazing how, like, I mean, for example, in California, you know, we've had these amazing winter rains, unprecedented snowpack, all the, the, the reservoirs that were, you know, like Shasta was 26% full, they're all full, you know. Everything seems fine. You know, everything's green, the wildflowers are bursting, the trees are happy, the creeks are flowing, the reservoirs are full. Right? Oh. It's all fixed. <laughs> what climate disruption? It seems fine. Until it's until it's not. Unless we live with amnesia. And um so, so one of the things I, I find helpful in these times is um, is inclining my mind because my mind can incline towards a lot of misanthropy. I don't know if you share that also. You know, people are a problem. We're a virus. We're destroying everything. We're going to take everything down with us. We're a problem. Right? My mind can go there. Anybody, anybody's mind can go there. <laughs> Those people are a problem. <laughs> Right, and it's intense, and it's very conflicting because it's like, but it's also, you know, I also believe people are trying to do their best, and I really sincerely believe that everybody's trying to do their best, however deluded and ignorant <laughs> that might be. Yeah. And there's a lot of ignorance, and there's a lot of fear, and a lot of greed, and hatred, and racism, and, and all of that. But you know, as as I learned in San Quentin prison, hurt people hurt people. Hurt people, hurt people. So, um, so I try to incline my mind towards goodness and the goodness in people, of which there is much, and the goodness of the the work that people are doing, the the amazing amount of work. You know, the probably I don't know, the hundreds of millions of people around the world who are working every day to create a more sustainable earth. I mean, it's millions and millions and hundreds of millions of people, probably, if you counted them up. When Paul Hawken did his book, Blessed and Rest, he counted 1.7 million organizations around the world that were dedicated to doing good for people, community, and planet. 1.7 million organizations. They probably, if, if, even if there's just, they employ 10 people, that's a lot more people. <laughs> 17, with that 17 million or 107? Anyway, a lot of people. <laughs> I failed math, you can tell. <laughs> um, like that's an amazing thing. He said, this is unprecedented in human history that people have come together and, and forming organizations for the, for, the, for the common good, for the common good of people and planet and species, right? And, and, and so, like, where do we incline our attention? We could look at the species loss, which is important to look at, but we could also look at all the people who are trying to restore habitats and create better environments for migrating birds and create these pathways through cities. And, you know, the list is endless of, of the goodness and the brilliance and the innovation and the creativity of people 
meeting the ecological crisis and, and being resourceful. And so I, I, I try to uh, attune my mind a lot to that because it's very easy to also just feel bleak, despair, and we're all fucked. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, I draw on my Dharma practice training, and this is really from, not that I've trained in Zen, but I feel influenced by Zen, of this idea of not knowing. Don't know mind. Don't know mind. Right? Is it hopeless? Don't know. Is it going to be all work? Is it all going to work out? Don't know. Are we going to survive as a species? Don't know. But so, but what do I do in this moment? If I'm loving what's here and caring for what's here, that's what matters. None of us can know the future. We don't know how this is going to turn out. And we can take sides and positions and views, and I don't think it's so helpful. And the scaring us into thinking it's all going to end has not helped. <laughs> we have not become climate champions by being told, you know, whatever we're being told and scared about. So, so inclining the mind, you know, the Buddha said, incline the mind towards the wholesome. Right? Incline the mind to the wholesomeness that people and organizations and even governments and corporations and whatever are doing to create sustainability and regeneration and whatnot. And I think why it's so important we come out to the woods, to the mountains, um, particularly if you're like me and you read a lot of environmental news, which is mostly not good news, and it can be, it can create a certain worldview, certain, certain lens. And then when I come out to the land and I put my hand on the land and I look at these flowers I don't know the name of, but they're beautiful and they've got amazing leaves and I see spring blooming and regenerating. It's like, oh, this, right, this, this too, this too, right? Both are true. Data's true, and also the robin's singing and building its nest for who knows how many years it's been doing that. Both are true. And as Joanna Macy said, what's a, and I asked her once how she deals with despair, and she said, I come together with others. I engage with others. I do actions with others. I don't care if we succeed. What I care about is coming together and, and supporting each other and working on stuff together. And, and that's why coming together like this is so important. We feel less alone. Maybe you feel quite isolated in your life or your world or your view about what's happening ecologically or otherwise. 
you come together with like-minded people, it's important. And if we can also work on something together, even better. So I'm going to just wrap this up with um, a story. Uh, this person's... Uh, oh, that's right. I was uh, listening to a podcast and I, I just talked about this teacher, John Seed. There's a wonderful book called Thinking Like a Mountain. And he did a lot of, a lot of Joanna Macy's early work. He, they, they sort of co-created the, the work, the work that reconnects. Um, and um, anyway, in, in that book, I think that in this book, he tells a story, and some of you heard the story, but I think it worth worth hearing again. Um, he uh, was a young man. Uh, he was a Vipassana practitioner, and I think teacher um, in New South Wales, Australia. And um, at the time, this was probably in the seventies. And they were, um, he was living uh, next to a lot of um, beautiful virgin uh, forest, old-growth forest. And his, his friends were much more environmentally active, and they called him and said, hey, there's a big protest, we're trying to, uh, we're waiting for the injunction in court to go through, but until then we have to block the bulldozers and the logging trucks and the, and the, the loggers. And so he said, okay, I'll come join you. And he comes down, he's not really an activist, and it's not really his thing. But, you know, he gets involved, and he loves the forest, and he suddenly finds himself at the front of this big demonstration facing these gigantuan um, trucks, and, you know, the logging, logging machinery is, is immense. And um, he... Um, so he's standing there, and he's, I think, probably afraid... And then he has this realization. He realizes, oh, it's not John who's protecting the rainforest. It's the rainforest protecting themselves through John. The rainforest protecting themselves through John. That's the earth moving through you, right? That's listening and responding, right? The rainforest is protecting itself through John, right? And the earth will protect itself through us, right? And the earth will take care of things and each other through us, right? How else will it do it, right? How else could it do it? Because we are the earth, right? So, so that's the shift in consciousness. And I believe that the that it's through the very visceral, immediate, sensory connection that that we that we learn that and deepen in that. It's not abstract. It's like we need to come, you know, we need to connect in a very visceral way for that to really come alive and also to stay alive you know because when we retreat to our you know our buildings and our homes and our offices and 
it, it, it so easily becomes distant and it so easily becomes other out there, out the window, you know, in the park over there, in the mountains way up there in some other state. And it's a bit like, um, I'm thinking about Michael Pollan's book, uh, that book he did, had a picture of an apple on the front. Botany of Desire. Botany of Desire, mm-hmm. wonderful book, right? That, that, that things like apples were brilliant in their ability to make humans populate them all over the world by becoming shiny and tasty and sweet right it's a very successful evolutionary and wheat also you know we think we're hybridizing wheat to make an optimal wheat plant but it's hybrid it's hybridizing us you know so there's this intelligence you know moving through so anyhow that's all I wanted to share for now, just to, just to presence this, um, you know, the broader ecological picture in which we're both living in, but also we're practicing in, and, um, and to hold a question, you know, how does the earth wish to move through you? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.